nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with a reading from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue Then, first published oh long ago in 1977. Someone in town has painted all the fire plugs red, white, and blue. In Albany, even the dogs get a bicentennial minute. 1976, an honored name. They've dug up Betsy Ross, a very important woman this year. At first, they couldn't find her, so they dug up a graveyard, unearthed lots of her relatives. They found her at last. They identified the bones, and they were the real ones. Later, they found a new place to bury her where the public can pay money to visit her grave. 1976, it is a comfort to look in the mirror this morning and consider that decadent as I am and weary as I have become, if I had had my way and managed to marry the great love of my 17th year, I would now be the wife, and doubtless the drunkard wife, of the president of the Junior Chamber of Commerce in a California beach town run by a den of Republicans. God save us all from what we want. Fall 1976. Oh, this is a phrase found in the notebooks of Sigmund Freud. Poor child, what have they done to you? That phrase dates from the early years when Freud still believed in the reality of sexual abuse. In later years, he came to reject his first impression and to believe that women imagined abuse because they desired it. And this could do little but increase their hysterical symptoms. Thinking of Kay, remembering how she shocked us so, ribald and rebellazian, saying, how foreplay bored her, she'd rather get right down to it standing nude in front of the mantel mirror 
in that Manhattan apartment in the winter of 1957, plucking the black hairs that curled around her nipples, saying she'd found a man who could keep it up all weekend. Remembering her at 15, in the dark hall of her house in Santa Monica. Her mother, so small, too, and so stiff with arthritis, too tired to do the dishes, too depressed to talk. Kay saying she'd promised her mom to clean up the house after school she picked up a few newspapers, put some dishes to soak in the rusty sink, went to the door of her mother's bedroom and brusquely demanded money to go out. Twirling around and around on the seat at the drugstore fountain, she said that, well, she'd better tell me about her mother. If I was going to come over again, her mother had been raped seven years ago. It happened one evening on the beach. Since then, her mom never leaves the house alone. It was sad and all, but her father couldn't deal with it, so he left them the year after it happened. It was real important that no one hear about it at school because her mother imagined everyone knew and talked about it, and well, they couldn't afford to move. I promised not to tell. In fact, I forgot. Over all these years bumping into Kay, she was always in search of the infinite screw, the phallic solution, the existential stranger on Camus Beach, the last man on earth. Once or twice, she thought she'd found him. She'd disappear for a year or so and then pop up in some unlikely bar explaining that uh, she needed to meet someone new, someone who wasn't hung up, someone who wasn't afraid of sex. Once, she asked... What I got out of motherhood. Uh, did I wash my little boy's peckers? Did they have big peckers and did I take them to the beach? Bury them in the sand there? No kids for her, thank God, she said, and no house with dishes and damp. She bought me a drink, though, the year my eldest son started high school. She said I shouldn't live with my sons, not now that they were big. We had a few harsh words. Even I get sick of sickness from time to time. Then today, after an absence of two years... She surfaced in Berkeley, sitting alone at a table in the cafe. She had a black eye and the shakes. Her hair was dyed jet black. 
She pretended she didn't know me. And I pretended back. January 1977. Begins with a line from F. Scott Fitzgerald. In the true dark night of the soul, it is always three o'clock in the morning, day after day after day. <laughs> Time dies. I used to think I would go mad. I've given that up. I'll remain lucid until it's over. I might die sleeping. That would be nice. I, I've tried to escape the knowledge of myself by following threads through labyrinths. I've come to the end of that rope. Nothing left to die for me except time. I beg myself to get on with it. I spend hours considering whether or not to take 10 minutes exercise. I worry for days, for weeks, about an assortment of dog-eared paperback books, whether to store them, give them away, take them to the used bookstore, leave them alone on buses, bury them near the trees. I have in my closet a stack of old theater arts magazines from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. I've carried them with me from apartment to apartment for 20 years, meaning to look them over again someday. Ah, I finally decided to give away a huge box of old clothes from the 50s only a year before they came back into style. One moment, I want to preserve everything. Fill a museum with the flotsam and jetsam of a lifetime. Next moment, I want to burn the house down, start all over with a robe, a bowl, and a new felt pen. Some day, I will get my apartment arranged the way I want it. Answer all the letters. Dust everything. Make the phone call I've put off for 17 years. I have kept all the poems ever written to me. They sit in a blue box in my top drawer. I can't throw them away until I look through them, read them one more time. I lie in bed for days, staring at the face on the ceiling, trying to remember what thing is most important to do. I carry an overdue library book around in my bag for months. I have filed Christmas cards for more than 10 years, throwing away a few more each year, sorting uh, some uh, finally answering one. My friends tell me I dwell on death. They should know. 
I should try to change. I should attempt psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. I am advised to go out and circulate. I must be outgoing. I should get out. I should go for a walk in the sun. I'll go. It is midnight out on the street. I should have waited for the light. On the corner is an antique store with windows full of time. Inside the window, a black cat glides carefully through the crystal, through the old lace, through the catatonic 19th century dolls. She rubs against the legs of ancient love seats, jumps down from a silenced clock, slips inside a musty wardrobe cupboard. Okay, that's enough circulation. Back inside the apartment, it's still hours until morning. I could take a nap. If I get plenty of rest, I'll feel better. My liver is scarcely functioning. I stay in bed so much, I'm crazy for sleep. I'll take anything for sleep. Okay, the sleeping pill wears off by evening. I must go out. I must see people. See the people. See the twilight people in the coffee house. Quick, yell at the people before they yell at me. Talk them up the wall. Shout them shut. If I stop talking, even for a moment, one of them will get me. I am very outgoing. I talk for hours to keep from saying anything. I do remarkably little harm. That can be said. She did not do a great deal of harm. A little here and there to this one and that one, but less and less as time went on. It is not that I am unsocial, certainly it is not that I can rise to an occasion. I become quite high, even manic, when I am among my fellows. I don't, of course, listen to them, but I hear everything. I cannot shut it out. Alone in my room, their words leak in through the cracks around the frames of the windows. They're easier to listen to when it rains. Most of the time, their voices are only echoes in the air. Their faces float in a sort of Celtic cesspool at the bottom of a well. An occasional corpse surfacing, grinning and gray. I'm still sitting at the table in the coffee house. The man shrieks at me, eye contact. He wants me to look him in the eyes, barbarian. 
In the Far East, it is understood that a glance is the most personal communication. Anyone can touch in the dark. It's that optic nerve that sears the soul, the look that lasts. I pull myself together and look at him hard. He disappears in smoke. I, I, I don't have to do that much anymore. <laughs> they leave me alone for the most part. I pass for mad. These confrontations eyeball to eyeball rape the spirit, leave me shattered. I don't even want to see them when they call on the phone. So, if they let me alone now at last, finally, I'll scatter the ashes of myself, falling from so abstract a summit, they touch no one, becoming memories so brief, they melt as softly as spores sinking into the earth, returning always to themselves as rain might wash the sea. Autumn, 1977. In the coffee house, we talk quietly. Around this table, we talk to ourselves. Early in the morning, in this smoke-filled room, we make remarks to give each other the impression we exist. There's only two sorts of people left in our world. The ignorant and the terrified. Crossing the street to the bookstore, I see a young male sitting on the curb with his head in his hands. His T-shirt reads, <laughs> Reading rots the mind. He picks a flower from the gutter, gives it to the girl crouched behind him. She smiles, touches his face, laughing suddenly, holding his head still with one hand. She carefully picks a fighting crab louse from his eyebrow. She puts it down on the sidewalk with reverence. <laughs> I give them spare change, telling myself they confirm my existence. Winter 1977 begins with a quote from Christina Rossetti. When I am dead, my dearest, sing no sad songs for me. Plant thou no roses at my head. 
nor shady cypress tree. I went to visit my old friend and teacher. We were together in the theater in the old days. She's dying now. She went to Russia, saw Chekhov's house. Oh, everything is so beautiful, she says. She cannot believe she's leaving it behind. She says she will have a pink satin coffin. And she drinks codeine cocktails over chipped ice. She is still waiting, sweet goodnight lady, waiting for love to come. Soon, she says, soon she will be sleeping in her pink satin coffin. And now she is, now she is. I can't sleep in this heat wave. In dreams I hear the cypress trees above me. Simon is 14 now. Puberty has come, and he doesn't sleep very well either. Late last night he woke up, wandered outside, goofy from the heat. He circled the apartment house pool. <laughs> Standing at the deep end, he spread his arms out, crying. They never learn, not Christ, not nobody. He fell backwards into the water. The manager saw him out there. She crashed through her back gate, yelling, What are you doing in that pool in the middle of the night with your shoes on? Simon hauled himself out, took off his jeans, and wrung them out, saying, Oh, hell, I'm Thalian. <laughs> and... Cypress trees. I plead for the right to write. Type titles on envelopes for new poems. Put dates of beginning and ending on each one. When the envelopes fall, file it in the big box. And yes, and more and more until there is enough. I pretend, I pretend that poetry readings are a joke. Literary criticism. If it is more work to read it than it was to write it, uh, burn it. So, continuing again, each time my life is broken into and once more, beginning to continue. Always playing the Zen Buddhist, whose work takes care of itself, takes care of itself. I never admit that every line is an autopsy. I pray to the pictures on my desk. Sappho, 
Emily and Charlotte Bronte, Christina Rossetti, and her mother, Virginia Woolf and her mother, so many more. Isadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein coming and going through my dreams, talking mostly about the sea. Gertrude noticed my house was ankle-deep in seawater. She trudged around to the back where the breakers were knocking down the walls. The rust gave the thing the look of an ancient shipwreck. She seemed to enjoy wading in the tide pools, splashing and laughing. In the serious mornings, I take manuscripts to the post office and wait. An editor asks why I want to. I must remember to ask him the same. There is money to be had in the arts. Jim said so. There is money, he said, but don't depend on it. Don't give it too much thought. And the telephone, oh, no. No, 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 I can't come with you this time. So afraid of dissipating the strength I haven't got. Rest, I'll get lots of rest now. Yesterday I went into a rest room. I imagine someone was dead in there, in the little cabinet. I couldn't use the toilet because I was so sure someone in there was dead behind the door and cypress trees. And the people. Sally can't go to Santa Cruz because her brakes are sick. But we can go to dinner. We can eat with chopsticks, which is better than an evening with him because he is so boring now and just wants screwing. I tell him it's like sandwiches. There has to be something in between. Eh, he calls it self-pity when I talk that way. I call it sadness. Kirsten says... She is always right in front of the fan when the crap hits. Right poem. The fan dance. There was a woman lost her wig in the wind today. You've been listening to the voice of Jennifer Stone, reading from her memoir, Telegraph Avenue Then. You can listen to all the chapters in our archives online at kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday.
In celebration of February Black History Month, Mills College invites you to an evening honoring the life and legacy of late great jazz tenor saxophonist Dexter Gordon. It comes on the release of Sophisticated Giant, the highly acclaimed biography written by his widow, Maxine Gordon. Join us Wednesday, February 27th, 7 to 9 p.m. at Lisser Hall on Mills Campus as Maxine Gordon shares personal and political insight into this complex man. View clips from his Oscar-nominated movie, Round Midnight. See rare photographs from their lives as jazz royalty and groove to a live jazz performance. This event is wheelchair accessible. Get your tickets at brownpapertickets.com. Event benefits the Mills College Oakland Promise Scholarship Fund. Listening to 94.1 KPFA and 